welcome to you. If it's your first time with us this morning, just want to reiterate Richard's comments. Please do stick around for tea or coffee. My name's Barney. And today we are starting a new series in Exodus. Um, so we are going to be there this morning. So if you have got a Bible, we are going to go there in a few minutes' time. Um, I have had a few comments on my shirt this morning saying that I should get a white bit of card and fold it in. <laughs> Didn't really think about that. Occupational hazard. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so anyway. Um, but yeah, we are in Exodus today. Now, we're in Exodus, and we're going to be in Exodus all the way through until the end of August. So we're going to be here now for a long time in the book of Exodus. And over the last couple of years, and I kind of feel like I've said a bit of this... Um, as I've introduced other series. We, we, have, we, we have moved our teaching model away from doing lots of thematic series where we look at themes in the Bible to more looking through books of the Bible together. And the reason for that, and I've said this before, is that we want to enable you and equip you to grow in your ability to be able to read and apply scripture to your life. So the Bible was written over a really long period of time, 1,400 years plus it was written over. And it was written by lots of various different people at different times in different contexts. You think back 1,400 years in our nation and think about what life was like then to what it's like now, lots changed, doesn't it? And so in the same way in the Bible, a lot, a lot changed throughout history. But God was speaking it to different generations at different times in different seasons to people. But yet we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that is, it applies to our life today. That whilst it had an original context, it also has a context for us today. And so our expectation is as we study the Bible together, we should grow in faith. Now, we aren't just a church that wants to be just 100% about the Bible. We also want to be a church that is 100% about the Spirit as well. Because we believe that actually it's only when you're 100% Word and 100% Spirit, then you can grow to full maturity in God. John Wimber, who was the... Um, who was the, the founder of the vineyard movement, said this, only Bible and we dry up, only spirit and we blow up, but word and spirit, we grow up. See, if we're both things, fully both things, we will grow up to maturity in Christ. I remember I was in a lecture once with a, um, somebody speaking about this, and, and he, got, he got everybody in the room, it was a theology lecture, we got everybody in the room to stand up, and he said, right, we, if, you're, if, you, if you think that you're more word than spirit, you go to that end of the room. And if you're more spirit and word, you go to that end of the room. So we all kind of found our place along this kind of continuum between word and spirit. I was somewhere in the middle, just so you know. I thought, wow, I'll be in the middle. He then got up and ran. Uh, 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 the image still sticks with me today. It was quite a long room. He ran from one end of the room to the other as fast as he could. And he said, look, if you really want to be biblically accurate, you need to be at both ends at the same time. And that's how we grow to maturity. And it is our heart as a church that we grow in maturity so that a mature Christian and a mature disciple looks like a disciple who can make disciples of other people. So that's why we're studying through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons why we want to study through Exodus is we believe that it's going to reveal Jesus to us. Okay, so the, the, the story of Exodus is one that time and time again, we are going to encounter the saving grace of God. And so... Just on that, in the, in the Bible, there is there's like this, this big narrative arc that takes place. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's also some smaller kind of cycles that take place. Can we put up the next slide? So it, it, we can see this kind of this pattern happening time and time again throughout Scripture. You get creation, God creates. Humans rebel. They find themselves in captivity because of their rebellion. And they need somebody to redeem them. And Christ or God comes and redeems them. And then there's a creation moment again. And it kind of cycles through. So in the Old Testament, this pattern happens over and over again, like a wheel that turns round. It keeps happening. So let me give you a few examples. 
Genesis chapter 1, God creates, we know this, Adam and Eve rebel. They find themselves out of the garden. They effectively find themselves in captivity to themselves. And also what we, we see is that actually all of the, the world becomes uh, captive to their sin straight away. This is kind of a huge degeneration that takes place. And so God then redeems and renews the world itself through the flood. We get the flood and God starts over again. There's a new point of creation. And then there's another rebellion that takes place. And this time we get Babel. And God brings punishment on them for, uh, for, for rebelling against him. And they find themselves in captivity to their tongues. They don't understand one another anymore. And then there's the wait and the look for a redemptive point in time. And the reason that we end up in Exodus where we end up to is part, partly, so I'm just sidelining for a minute, is partly due to because of what happens at Babel. Because the nations of the world are formed. And what we're going to find when we get to Exodus is that God's people, the Israelites, are actually in captivity in another nation. So this kind of cycle takes place. Now, what we find is when we get to Exodus and we get to where we're at, what's happened is, is past Babel, God has um, drawn a people to himself through Abraham. He, he covenants with Abraham. He draws a people to himself. And through, he says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to grow a people group. Now, this people group find themselves eventually in Egypt. What happens is, if you remember the story of Joseph... Joseph is effectively tricked by his brothers. He ends up being sold as a slave to Egypt. But whilst he's in Egypt, God chooses to bless him, multiply him, prosper him. Why? Because God is working for God's own purposes through the life of Joseph. And so God's people then, so Joseph's brothers come and join him. God's people end up in Exodus, sorry, end up in, in Egypt. And then when we find at the start of Exodus, what's happened is some 400 years have passed and they are now in captivity. And what we're going to see in the story of Exodus, in our little kind of circle of, of, of pattern that I've given you, is we're going to see the two points of captivity and redemption. We're going to see people in captivity, and we're going to see them being redeemed. Now, if we were going to sco scoop past beyond that, we'd then get to Joshua, and we'd see that God creates again. He creates the nation of Israel in Israel. They, what happens? They rebel again. They then find themselves in captivity again. They then find themselves being redeemed again through Ezra and Nehemiah, and they end up back in Jerusalem. This pattern keeps going in small circles throughout the Bible. Do you understand what I'm talking about? But there's also a meta-narrative. That's a bigger arc that happens throughout the Bible. And this meta-narrative is exactly the same, but it takes place across the whole of Scripture. And it starts in the same place I started a minute ago in Genesis. God creates the world. It's perfect. Humans rebel against God. They find themselves in captivity to themselves, to sin and to death. And we need a redeemer. So Christ comes into the world to redeem us from what is broken. And then there's a promise at the end of Scripture, at the end of Revelation, that Christ says he's going to come and make all things new. There's going to be new creation again. And so what we find is when we're looking through Exodus, we're going to keep seeing this story played out on a small scale. We're also going to see it pointing towards this bigger story that takes place in Scripture, that Jesus is coming to redeem what is broken. That although we are captive, Christ has come to deliver us. And so there's a lot of um, sort of images that we will see throughout as we read Exodus that are going to point to our state as Christians today. So that being said... Let's read Exodus 1 together, because I just wanted to get you there in your brains as to why, uh, where we're at in Scripture and why we're there. So we're at a point of captivity. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob... Numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. This is the story I've just spoken about. It's 
uh, Genesis 38 to 50. Uh, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now, I'll just stop really briefly. If you want to go back and do a little bit of research on this, actually God prophesies that this is going to happen. So go back to Genesis 15. God is um, covenanting with Abraham. I've already mentioned that. And at that point in time, there is a promise that this people group that God's going to create are going to suffer. And they're going to find themselves in exile in Egypt. And they're going to be there for 400 years. Now, that's where we're at right now. 400 years have passed between Joseph and this new king. And the new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And he said, look, this is verse 90's people, the Israelites have become too, too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous than us. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Do you know, this always happens to God's people. Where God's people are oppressed, God blesses them. You see it even in the world today. China, there's a huge oppression of Christianity. But the Christian faith continues to grow in that nation. Because where God commands a blessing. God commands a blessing when his people are oppressed. It's just, we see it time and time again, time and time again in scripture. So the Israelites came to dread, sorry, the Egyptians, they came to dread the Israelites. And they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and in mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the, boy, the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. The babies just fall out, they say to them. (laughs) Many women here hoping that that was the case. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people, every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So here we go. This is the opening chapter in our story of Exodus. And we've got a recap on what's happened before in Genesis. And then we've got this kind of new narrative takes place with this new Pharaoh, this this king, and he's not a nice guy. And the way that he leads, we'll see as we kind of carry on going through uh, the next few chapters of Exodus, is in direct opposition to the way that God, Yahweh, leads. And, and, And Pharaoh... Is, is a character in the story that is a juxtaposition of what, of what God is like. He's almost like the complete opposite of what God is like. So this pharaoh, this king, he leads through uh, a self-obsession for, for fame, power and fortune. He just wants to maintain his power base. He's fearful that if he doesn't maintain his power base, he's going to lose it. 
And so what he does is he subjects this group of people to ruthless hard labour. He subjects them to ruthless hard labour because he's in fear for his own power. I mean, it sounds like some world leaders that we've got around at the moment, doesn't it? But the thing about this as well is if you look, really read it into it, it's not just Pharaoh who's engaged in this sort of practice. It's his people. All of Egypt are engaged in this fearful attitude towards these foreigners amongst them. They're engaged in this fearful attitude towards them. It's become a cultural point in this culture that they just can't stand the Israelites and that they are fearful of them. They're scared. Why? Because they see success as being all about power. They see success as being about being, uh, being, having fame and fortune. They, they want to be powerful and lord it over the other nations around them. See, it's not just Pharaoh. It's a whole cultural situation that we read here. This people group are obsessed with holding on to it for themselves. And in this moment, we see these two women, Shifra and Pua. I can never say their names right. And they demonstrate something very different. They demonstrate what it looks like to walk differently in the midst of a culture that has turned its back on God, that is not interested in that in any other way of living than just to go after itself. And they walk with faithfulness. It says that rather than, um, rather than obeying the king of Egypt, they fear God and ignore what he said to them. And they come up with obviously this ridiculous excuse about, about the babies falling out of women. Um, they come up with this kind of idea, but look, this story is all about their faithfulness to God. It's all about faithfulness. We've sung faith about faithfulness um, a few times already this morning. It's funny how God works, didn't know what songs were being picked this morning. And I do want to talk about faithfulness today, because I think what we're seeing here is a model of faithfulness. A model of faithfulness. What it looks like to walk with God when you're in a culture that doesn't follow. So what is, what is faithfulness? Well, faithfulness is being steady, it's being stable, it's being trustworthy, and it's being firm. It's walking in these ways. If you were going to look at the root Hebrew uh, words from where we get the English translations of faithfulness, this is what you'll find. It's about walking with steadiness and steadfastness. It's about walking with a sense of uh, stableness and trustworthiness. And these, these are the things that these women exhibit in this little story. They walk with faithfulness. And without confrontation... Because they don't confront Pharaoh, do they? They just get on with doing the job of walking faithfully before God. So you might go, okay, well, so what? What's, what's like, big deal? Like, okay, that's an interesting story. Like, these women walk with faithfulness. They, uh, they, they save these babies. And obviously, we get to the point of Moses. Maybe that's just the point of the story. It's all about just the teeing up for Moses' birth, you might say. Well, I think that there's something in this for us today. Because there are leaders in our generation that are just like Pharaoh. There are leaders in our generation. Maybe you work for one. I had a boss that once, not in church, I, I had a boss once uh, when I was a teacher um, who uh, reminds me of this so much. He led through fear. You, he tr treated the teachers like the worst pupils in the school. You, he led through fear, through manipulation, and through ruthlessness. You were frightened to go to his office. And actually, it came out in the press that he was embezzling money from the school because he was trying to build his power base in other schools in the region. He, he was one of these London superheads, and he got found out for it. And he was that kind of leader. So maybe you encounter leaders just like that in your workplace. Maybe you've got somebody who uh, reminds you of this Pharaoh character like I have. 
The other thing is, though, that our culture is just like Egypt. We're obsessed with something. I know I speak about culture a lot, but we, we must speak about culture. Because I know, depending on how old you are in the room, you remember what it's like to live in Christendom, in a nation that is kind of Christian. We don't live in that anymore. That's gone. It's dead. It's, it's gone now. We now live in, a, in, a, in a, a world that is secular. We live in a world where um, people don't want religion, they want spirituality. That's the culture that we live in. And so we need to recognise uh, we, we are now Christians living in a secular world. We are now Christians living in a culture that is not for the gospel. We're Christians living in a culture that, that has a culture in and of itself that is actually opposed to the gospel. Because it promotes attitudes that are self-serving. I spoke about that last time I preached. Our culture is self-obsessed. Our culture says that success is, is, is obtained through power, through fame and through fortune. Look at Twitter, look at Facebook, look at Instagram. Instagram is all about being famous. That's what it's trying to teach you. If you're famous, you'll be successful. You look at the, the influencers on Instagram. They're influencing you into an attitude that is all about you being successful through uh, being popular, through money, through fame, through adulation, through people liking you for what you look like and what you say and what products you buy. This is the culture we live in. It's more like Pharaoh's generation than we might realise at times. So what's important about Shifra and Pua then in this? Well, in this story, notice whose name doesn't actually get named. We don't know which Pharaoh this is. Have you noticed that from the story? You don't note it. It doesn't tell you which Pharaoh this is. Who is named? These two women. These two women are the important people in this story. Because the thing is this. God doesn't care about success that is gained through fame, fortune and power. He, 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 all he cares about is faithfulness. What matters to God isn't about how famous you are, it's about how faithful you are. It's about how faithful you are. These women are named for a reason. They are faithful servants of God. And we are called to be like these two women. We're called to live lives of faithfulness. Now, Pharaoh is, is, is an archetypal figure who is anti-God. You could say that he's anti-Christ. He, he, he pushes an agenda that is against the gospel. And we need to recognise that as people who are of the kingdom, we operate differently from that kind of kingdom. That in our culture, we're called to live differently, to behave differently from a culture that represents this kind of um, win-at-all-costs type mentality. We're called to live and walk differently. We're called to live lives that oppose powers and, 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 and cultures that are in conflict with the gospel of God. We're called to live lives that oppose it. Now, there is another thing that we can look at in this um, chapter as well. And there's, uh, you remember I talked about this big narrative arc in Scripture. Well, we find that here in this text as well. Shephra and Pua, they are um, celebrated for their faithfulness because they saved these baby boys from death. But I think that this is, reminds us of something else that we see in Scripture. And it's the opposite happening. God shows his faithfulness to us that he doesn't save his baby boy, Jesus, from death. It's the opposite way around. These women are faithful because they saved the babies from death, but God is faithful because he sends his son 
as a, as a baby, fully God, fully man, into the world. This baby grows to be a man. He lives a perfect life, and I'll talk about his faithfulness in a second. He dies on a cross for you and I that we might be saved. Can you see how the, 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 the two things parallel with one another? Because of their faithfulness, the babies are saved. Because of God's faithfulness, because of his death, because of his son's death, you and I are saved. We experience God's faithfulness towards us in that. Now, Jesus, Jesus is also faithful. And we see this in scripture, don't we? Before he's crucified, he's in the garden and he's saying, God, would you take this cup from me? But then he says, but not your will, but, but not my will, but yours. I, I'm, I'm going to follow it through. He remains faithful to the will of God. He remains faithful. And Jesus is our ultimate model of what faithfulness looks like. That when the chips are down, Jesus says, no, I'm following my Father's will. I'm going to walk in the way of the Father. Jesus models what that looks like. And there's something else as well. Colossians 2, verse 15. I'm just going to um, go there quickly myself. Um, Colossians 2, verse 15. Hopefully it'll come up on the screen, but... I can't remember it, so it's fine. It says this, that having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. What's going on when Jesus dies on the cross is not just so that you and I can know God. Jesus is defeating any other culture and any other power that stands in opposition to him. So, so when we, we think about this kind of Egyptian leading through fear, leading through manipulation, leading through success at all costs, that culture has been ultimately defeated by Jesus on the cross. He has claimed power and authority over any other worldview. It says here that because of what Jesus has done, every power and authority has been disarmed and made, made a public spectacle of. Through this, through this man dying, it looks like a failure, doesn't it? Doesn't it look like a failure? Somebody dies on a cross, it looks like failure to me. But in that moment that you and I, from a, a human perspective, see as fit failure, the God's biggest, greatest victory is being achieved. Every power and authority is coming under the submission of Christ. Now, you and I need to then walk in faithfulness because of that. We walk in faithfulness because of Christ's faithfulness towards us. Reminded of what it says in Galatians 5 that I spoke about last time out. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? It's faithfulness. So how do we walk in faithfulness? We need to rely on the Spirit. But as we close today, I just, wanna, I just was thinking about a few people here and how this might apply to you. So let me give you a few application points this morning. Maybe I, I spoke about my boss, my old boss uh, earlier on. Maybe for you, you just, this is the situation you live in. You've got somebody who's living with this kind of culture. Your workplace looks like this. It's not a good environment to be in. You don't enjoy being there. It's hard work. It's oppressive. Your boss rules through fear. Maybe that's the situation that you live in. Maybe you've come, I've spoken about this before as well. Maybe you've come from a church to Gateway and that's how your church operated. There's certainly been some churches around the world that are struggling with this at the moment. They lead through fear and manipulation and control. But maybe you're in that situation at the moment. My encouragement to you is to walk and walk in faithfulness, but know the faithfulness of Jesus. And know that Jesus has disarmed the powers of those authorities on the cross. It's the first thing. Secondly, 
Maybe you need to walk in faithfulness in your personal life. Maybe you are allowing too much room in your life to our culture to dictate to you what you should think and what you should say. Maybe you're allowing social media, your friends, to influence the way that you think about the world, and you have got yourself caught in a pattern where what's important to you is about fame, fortune, and power. That is not the gospel. The gospel calls you to faithfulness in Jesus. So my encouragement to you today is that maybe you just need to do some work with God and lay that back down again and come back to the cross where Jesus has demonstrated faithfulness towards you. And lastly, maybe you've just got an opportunity, or I think we all have actually, to demonstrate what faithfulness looks like to the world around us. Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples when you love one another. And we can demonstrate faithfulness, faithfulness to the way of God, as we walk that out through loving God and loving one another. And so my encouragement to you this week is to consider, how can I be faithful in this culture that I live in? How can I be faithful in this generation that I'm in? So we're going to close in prayer now. Um, But I just would like you to take all of those things away and think about them as we step into the week ahead. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Exodus. We thank you that it's going to show us a story of deliverance from captivity. And Jesus, we thank you that you have delivered us from captivity. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have delivered us from captivity and you have overcome any other culture, any other worldview that stands in opposition to you. And Jesus, we want to remain faithful to that. And so I pray this week, Lord, for anyone here who needs to walk in faithfulness in their personal life towards you, faithfulness in their relationships and their marriages, faithfulness. I pray, Lord Jesus, this week that you would just uh, speak to them. Holy Spirit, we thank you that a fruit of your work in us is faithfulness. So Holy Spirit, come do your work in us this week. As we give our lives over to you, you would draw faithfulness into us. Lord, I pray for anybody here who, like Shifra and Pua, are in a situation where they're, they're confronted with maybe having to do something that they are uncomfortable with doing. Lord, I pray that you would give them the opportunity to demonstrate what faithfulness to you looks like, what fear, the fear of God looks like. Lord, and we pray that you would multiply and bless them as a result. We are reminded in this story that you bless these ladies' faithfulness. You give them families. And so, Lord, we pray, if anyone is in that situation, I pray for them this week that they might know breakthrough in your precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to just close by saying one thing. I I feel the need to be more faithful to God, which is a good thing, right? (laughs) I'm praying more than I've ever prayed before. Genuinely, I'm getting up to pray for the prayer meetings before the prayer meetings in the mornings. If you want to walk in faithfulness, you need to develop a a habit of prayer. I just encourage you to join us this week. I know early mornings aren't great for everyone. Why not come on Tuesday evening and pray with us for an hour? We want to pray with you. We're going to pray for the sick. We're going to pray for the nations. Please join us. If you want God's healing power on your life, we want to pray for you this Tuesday night. If you want to pray for what's going on in the world, we want to pray for you this Tuesday night. But 